Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello. So today we are talking about the legal challenges that your organization might get into and how to avoid them. Eek! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what's so interesting is that it's not black and white, right? Like, it's not like you are fully in breach of the law versus fully compliant. Like, there are a lot of areas where you could probably clean up and Mm -hmm. just do things better. Yeah. Uh, And so Mark really dives into things that a lot of charities don't do quite right. And uh, and we'll talk about how you can take steps to make sure that you are doing them uh, in a more compliant and easier way. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, he spends a lot of time uh, speaking about the T3010, which is the bane of many charities' existence. But he makes a really great point, I think, about the difference between the Canadian return and the American return. So for for all of our American listeners, you know, in Canada, we actually have it quite easy. Sorry to the Americans. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, so he, you know, he really talks about how important that is. And, you know, if I can sort of just, like, reflect on, on my, uh, my time as a managing director and having to prepare those T3010s, one of the things that that I realized very quickly and, and through through good mentorship is that the preparation of the T3010 does not begin at, at your fiscal year end. It begins at your fiscal year beginning, um, which is to say, like, geeking out, going to Staples and buying the right colored uh, folders so that I could separate my visa receipts from my debit receipts, from my check stubs, from my deposit slips. Uh, and, and so beginning with just a process of, of understanding how to get organized about it um, uh, on January 1st or whenever your fiscal year begins saved so much time, stress, and hassle at the back end. Um, it, it's just not something that you can put off. Definitely. And what I love about what Mark says is he says, like, just start now, mm-hmm. right? And there's really no point in going back and opening a can of worms because he does talk about that, the consequences of that. You don't want that. But take today as the opportunity to say, I'm going to invest in doing this right for a lot of reasons. And, and what Mark talks about as well is from the perspective of your your donors and your, your potential donors, like this is public information. Yeah. Um, that you will be judged on. So, you know, even as a small organization, this is a top priority. And the more you invest in the systems, as Anya mentioned up front, Mm -hmm. the easier it will be. And then I'm going to throw back to the episode we did with Leanne Picot around future-proofing your organization. You really want to not just have systems for you, but for your whole team. That's right. How do you make this the responsibility of everyone mm-hmm. to be in good uh, legal standing? No, that's absolutely right. Because as the ED, it could absolutely fall on you to you know to make sure that all of your financial records, in particular, are um, are in order, and and it should to some extent. But the process should involve everybody. So, you know, you know 
having clear guidelines about what happens when a, um, a program staff makes an expense um, against that program. What should they do with that receipt? Where can they upload it to in a shared folder? How do they have? To, what's the naming convention that makes it super easier to find? Um, and if possible, this is something that that uh, I started doing um, again with with help from great mentors. Um, was creating budgets wherein the item that was actually purchased there was a link to an, a PDF or a digital version of that receipt, right? So it meant that every single program budget, there were there was a paper trail as, associated with it. And, and that just, I can't tell you how much easier that made, uh, that made the audit process. Mark Bloomberg is a charity lawyer based in Toronto with Bloomberg Siegel LLP. And he's worked for over 20 years on issues relating to nonprofits, uh, registered charities and philanthropy in Canada and abroad. Mark has written and lectured extensively on these topics. He's the editor of two blogs, the CanadianCharityLaw.ca and GlobalPhilanthropy.ca, and manages CharityData.ca and SmartGiving.ca. So he really is the thought leader on uh, the law and charities and nonprofits in Canada. So please join me in welcoming Mark. Thank you, Cindy, for inviting me. So... Most people get into working for nonprofits for a number of reasons. Usually it's not around uh, being a legal expert and wanting to help uh, with that. So can you tell me some of the common issues you see organizations face around their their legal needs? Absolutely. So um I guess uh, there's two types of sort of nonprofits in Canada, if we want to put them into big categories. There are the ones that are nonprofits that are not registered charities, and there are nonprofits that are registered charities. Mm-hmm. And um, for all nonprofits, there are certain things that they need to worry about that, let's say, corporate, if they're set up as a corporation, they need to maintain their corporation, they need to do updates when they change their addresses and things, they need to uh, make adjustments. But what I'll focus on is registered charities who mm-hmm. tend to have a far greater number of legal issues that they uh, may have to deal with. And, uh, you know, just to rhyme off a whole bunch of different things, uh, probably the biggest uh, problem charities have sometimes is filing their T3010. Uh, and uh, about 600 a year don't do that. And then they will lose their charity status eventually. So that's uh, something that is specific for registered charities. And it's obviously quite important that they uh, get that form in. I was going to say that consequence of potentially losing your charitable status is if you don't file it at all. Do people file it wrong as well? Yes. Another issue, obviously, is the adequacy, the appropriateness, the accuracy of the filing. And um, as of a few years ago, CRA now has the power to... Uh, essentially, um, for example, suspend your receiving privileges if you are filing a T3010 form, your annual form, uh, with incorrect information. Another big one is uh, many charities um, do fundraising where they're asking the public for money. And uh, essentially, there are all sorts of rules and expectations around that. Um, And in some cases, charities are doing things that may get them into trouble with uh, CRA. So that's another compliance issue. Mm-hmm. Another one is, and one of the big advantages of being a charity is your ability to issue official donation receipts or what some people would call tax receipts. These are very valuable uh, little pieces of paper. 
And um, there's a huge number of rules that go along with issuing official donation receipts. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is um, also on the highly inappropriate side is, you know, fraudulent receipting where someone is just uh, issuing receipts, uh, you know, just completely fraudulently. So those are uh, some of the more extreme types of uh, problems. And sometimes there are other groups that don't have the special status, but they want to get some of the benefits. So sometimes uh, like a nice nonprofit will ask a charity, oh, you know, can you just issue a receipt for this person and then give us the money sort of thing. So how charities deal with non-charities is a very big issue. And many of them are not, unfortunately, either following the rules or keeping enough distance, etc. But you always want to make sure that there's clarity with the Canadian charity. And it's not confused with nonprofits and businesses and other things because that can create uh, other issues. And then, um, you know, there's issues around, for example, directors of a charity. They're a fiduciary. They're a trustee. It's very important that they are careful how they interact with the charity, both in terms of the obligations they have, uh, but also in terms of uh, relationships they have with the charity. And this isn't just like any business. And in fact, in general, for example, a trustee or a fiduciary or a, um, a charity director um, should not be receiving any compensation for the work that they're doing. And so that's another issue. Indirect as well. Like I've seen organizations without naming names where they would hire one of the board of board members uh, to outsource a certain project or something like that. Uh, and that's sort of fairly common. Uh, is that? You know, okay. Well, uh, so there's a there's a few issues. So yeah. in a nonprofit context, it's not necessarily a problem. But in the charity context, where we're talking charitable money, mm-hmm. there are certain rules. The general common law rule was, you cannot be paid as a director to be a director. You know, come to the directors' meetings and things like that. But also, mm-hmm. you cannot. You and your family are not supposed to benefit from the charity. You're supposed to act. In, a, in an impartial way and uh, without conflict of interest, etc. And you're not supposed to be you know, hiring your children to basically uh, run uh, certain programs uh, for the charity. You find someone else to do it or you get off the board. That was sort of the general uh, common rule. rule. Mm-hmm. There was always an exception to that rule, which is you can go to court and you can get a court order that allows you to do it. What about- That's usually the best approach. Yeah. yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. What about if they are a representative of their company, which happens to be privately owned by them, and that company has a role in uh, doing work for the charity? Well, if a company is paying them, so they're not being paid by the charity, then it's maybe not be an issue. Uh, the, the issue here we're talking about is charities' funds being used. Yes, um, but if the yeah, charity is so- paying that company to do work... Oh, a charity is hiring a private company. Yeah, again, you get into yeah. the potential for either an actual conflict or a potential conflict. Yeah, yeah. Great. No, I, I only uh, dig deep into that one because I do see that sometimes it's very easy for small organizations just to make decisions based on what's in front of you. And sometimes that is members of the board who have skill sets or services uh, personally or through their companies that really align with what your needs are, but there still needs to be due process and potentially, uh, you know, stepping stepping away from the board when there is a conflict. There are also ethics and standards and reputations at play, right? Yes. And so um, let me put it this way. If, um, if you want to get involved in things where there could be a perception of conflicts of interest, 
then you should expect that there will be people who will talk about there being a conflict of interest in that regard, right? So um, often my clients, I mean, where it's perfectly appropriate, for example, for a charity to pay for their travel expenses or something, um, you know, they're they're an employee of the charity or whatever the case may be. Um, in some cases, you know, it, it, it's more the optics issue that they have to look at and they have to think about. And, uh, and sometimes it's better to not get paid for something that even legally you might be able to because it maybe sends the wrong uh, message uh, to uh, the stakeholders of the charity. And that's one of the key differences, I would say, between a regular for-profit company and a charity is that most registered charities actually have more stakeholders who are these are groups that are engaged uh, and have a legitimate interest in the, the work of the charity. And so there are both legal and other expectations that are there. Whether they're fair or not is a different story, but there are expectations. And at least I try to help people when they don't come from the charity sector understand what those expectations are mm-hmm. um, because they may be used to you know, having a whole bunch of for-profit companies working together and doing things differently. And that's fine. But you don't want them to find out through having an article in the Toronto Star uh, that uh, what they're doing is not appropriate. The best approach is to uh, get advice and understanding in the beginning, do it right, and uh, move on uh, you know, so that you don't have those problems. Definitely. It's the front page test, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. You do not want your charity to end up on the front page of the paper for the wrong reasons. So, uh, Absolutely. Or it's the, uh, what if your mother knew about it? (laughs) 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 Might might be another uh, test. Definitely. Um, Yeah. Excellent. And there's lots of other issues, but those are just, you know, some. And, uh, you know, some of the other top ones I'll just toss out, Mm -hmm. including charities need to keep books and records. It's not good enough to just do good work. Two years, three years, four years later, you need to have documents that show what was done. Because people move from a charity to, they, they, you know, volunteers, there's turnover, there's things like that. So there needs to be a certain amount of books and records available for regulators, for funders, for others, so that they can see that stuff was done. Another thing with charities is they, they register charities can actually do quite a bit of business activities and quite a bit more that is the lucrative business activities, for-profit business activities charities can do, um, as uh, long as they comply with the related business rules. So, um, in fact, uh, charities can do a lot more than a nonprofit can do. Nonprofits are very constrained in terms of their business activities. So, um, charities can do it, but they need to make sure that they are uh, complying with the rules. And in fact, charities have far more earned income where they're earning it through doing uh, certain things, you know, a university charging tuition and things like that, than they do actually have uh, donations. So um, this isn't with every charity, but as a sector, it's very important and people need to understand uh, those uh, rules. And then some of the other top issues, um, you know, are, uh, you know, extreme issues like uh, charities can't be involved in terrorism. And that has come up uh, occasionally. uh, So important to anyone is doing activities inside Canada, outside of Canada, just to make sure you're not involved with groups that are either illegal uh, groups or uh, groups that are committing acts of violence and things like that. Um, some of the other issues that are more mundane, but also pretty, um, you know, although some people think that they're quite common, is the issue of uh, political activities. Um, you know, charities are allowed to do political activities. Um, there are certain rules. There's court cases going on around what they can be, and there may be changes in the future. But generally, historically, the rule has always been that uh, you know, charities are allowed to be engaged in political activities that are related to their objects, 
but they shouldn't spend more than 10% of their resources on uh, political activities and they shouldn't do partisan uh, activities. So that's just another thing that um, is sort of another compliance issue that charities sort of need to uh, pay attention to. And uh, yeah, no, there's lots of different issues and I'm happy to discuss other issues or uh, if you have, uh, if you want to drill into any of this stuff, just let me know. Yeah, I'd love to drill in to especially the first few that we that you mentioned. So around the T3010 uh, and filing returns, you know, let's get into the nitty gritty a little bit, because I think it's really hard to understand what I mean. Yes, you need to file them. That one's probably pretty obvious. But what are the the mistakes that are within that that you see in terms of maybe they file them, but it's incomplete or there are mistakes? Like how do charities really clean up that process? Because the risks to doing that wrong are quite significant. No, absolutely. So there's a few issues. The first thing is I, I don't start off with the, the hammer approach. I start off more with the, the, the carrot approach in terms of telling a charity that, uh, you know, the, the only public thing that every charity needs to really do all 86,000 is filed this one form. It's nine pages long, but most charities actually are only filling in about three or four pages. So we're not really talking about such a requirement. Now, for some people who love to complain, and they complain about everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if you had to file a half a page for them, that is outrageous. And how dare the federal government ask us to do anything? And that's fine. They're entitled to their views. But for normal people, what I would say is look at the American Form 990, which mm-hmm. is 20 times longer and 10 times more complicated. And you will see that, in fact, what's being asked of charities in Canada is actually a quite uh, reasonable and, if anything, Charity sector as a whole would probably benefit from more questions being asked so people would know more about the charity sector. So it's an important sector. Um, It's bigger than automotive, agriculture, and a whole bunch of other things. In fact, it's bigger than any business sector in Canada. Okay, So very important sector. And with many business sectors, we know far, far more information. I mean, there are definitely a lot of things that could be helpful to to be known. So Fundamentally, I start off with, yeah, this is one form you have to file a year. And, um, and if you do it inaccurately um, or in a way that is just obviously wrong, um, as many charities do, then you will end up having people potentially look at it. Um, I can't say we don't know exactly how many people look at the T3010s, but what I do know is it tends to be more important people. So, for example, if someone's going to leave you a $5 million bequest, their lawyer is probably going to look at your T3010 uh, before uh, finalizing the will. Okay, If you have a funder who gives you 80% of your funding, they're more likely to look at your T3010, right? So it's not how many people. It might be only 50 people a year look at your T3010, but those 50 people make decisions that could have a huge impact on your charity. And I would say 99% of Canadians really don't know whether a particular charity is doing a good job, even if they're donating to it. They're really just looking at what the charity says on its website. They're listening to stuff. They want to help with a particular issue. And they don't actually know, is this charity that does this daycare, is it a really good daycare? They don't know. Is the food nutritious, right? But when they look and they see that you've made obvious mistakes on your T3010, And some people may take that and uh, push it over to thinking maybe as a charity, you're not a very good charity. 
it doesn't reflect well on the uh, quality of the people then that are uh, filling it out or the mechanisms that they have in place uh, to capture the the information that's needed. Yeah. So that I definitely think, yeah. Lives on, right? That is available. It's, it, it, can you change it? Can you back, go back and correct it? Or is that yes. kind of written in stone? Okay. It, it, well, you're right. It lives on. Um, it lives on, you know, for 20 or 25 years, as long as sort of CRA keeps it on their system. Um, yes, you can go back and change it, but that is, to be frank, three times more work than actually just filing the form correctly, you know? So, and when you know, when you change one thing on a T3010, it often changes five things. So Mm -hmm. it does, there's a number of negatives with going and changing things is one is it raises your profile with CRA and you're maybe more likely to be audited. So with most groups, my first reaction is don't look at the past where you might've done it wrong. Just let's from today do it right. Focus on that. um, and, And that's the most important thing. If you have a lot more time on your hands, then you can start looking back. But uh, the most important thing is at least to try to start to uh, to fix uh, what you haven't done right and have the right systems. And a T3010 can't be fi- uh, can't be just thought about in the week before it has to be filed. You need to actually think: What does the T3010 ask for? Are we capturing this information? If we aren't, then we need to. Absolutely. So. Where can people go to learn how to fill them out correctly? Well, there's a few things. I mean, I've done uh, three-hour programs on, uh, you know, how to complete the the T3010 and what are some of the transparency and compliance issues. But CRA has a huge amount of information on their website. Um, There's a guide that comes along with the T3010. There are a number of charities that have put up resources that help uh, groups understand uh, what is there on the uh, T3010 and how to deal with it. Um, but the other thing is um, that, you know, there are, for example, uh, CPA Canada, which is, uh, and CPA, uh, the various CPA groups across the country, they do programs where, for example, um, you know, there's programs on how to uh, deal with this for accountants, right? And, uh, and basically, it's uh, just like filling in any uh, tax form, you need to have a certain amount of knowledge of not just that form, but you need to understand how charities are regulated and, and things like that. So it's um, something that um, you know people pick up and you might find that uh, a CFO of a major charity is very knowledgeable about the T3010 and you can ask them about it. You don't have to necessarily go to a lawyer or an accountant necessarily. Um, it could be just someone who's in the charity sector who spent a lot of time thinking about these issues can, can help. And again, for most charities, in fact, there are no complicated issues. They don't own real estate. They don't have employees. Their budgets are under $100,000 a year. And so for those charities, actually, the T3010 has um, a lot less, uh, shall we say, complexity. But for charities that are involved with uh, certain things like gifting uh, uh, gifts in kind or, sorry, receiping gifts in kind, or if uh, a charity is involved with foreign activities or if a charity... Uh, receives uh, funds from abroad over ten thousand uh, dollars, then you know there's more complexity in the the form. Uh, but for your average charity, it actually isn't that complicated, and very little information is asked of typical charities that are earning under a hundred thousand dollars. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the rules of fundraising. Uh, sounds kind of like a a game, but these are pretty set in stone. So what are the rules you see broken or misunderstood a lot? Well, I mean, let's start with what is fundraising. You're basically asking people to give money to something that's charitable, that you're saying you're going to do some charitable work 
and they're giving you the money. So one of the first most basic rules is the importance of being transparent and upfront with people about what's going on. Okay, so either, if, for example, don't say this is to help uh, you know children in Africa when in fact all the money is being spent in Toronto, for example. Okay, so very important that one is transparent uh, about it. Don't make commitments that you might not be able to fulfill. So sometimes, uh, say a hospital will say we're raising money for this new wing on our hospital. Okay, great. And that is the intention, definitely, to build a new wing. But there are other people who make decisions that sometimes result in changes in this world. You know, this world changes at an remarkable place, pace. So it might be a government department, you know, uh, decides, well, actually, we've decided you're not going to build a new wing later. You are going to, we're going to build a new hospital. Okay. So you've just raised money for a new wing at this particular hospital, but in fact, uh, it's not going to get built. So what do you do with the hundreds of millions of dollars you've raised? Those are the sort of issues that uh, it's very important to, for example, be upfront with donors and say, this is the plan. This is exactly what we're planning on doing. But if we can't do it, then you know we'll spend it on healthcare, or we'll spend it on building a clinic, or something else that gives you some uh, flexibility. So asking for res- funds to be restricted to something particular in some cases is fine. In some cases, uh, unless you caref- you're careful what you're doing, it can result in lots of uh, problems later. Um, with fundraising, I would also just point out that um, you know if you the way you fundraise. Uh, so it's not just about what you will spend the money on, but if you, for example, say to people, oh, all the money you're giving is going to go to the cause, none of it will be spent on anything else, but you're paying fundraisers or um, you know the other things, uh, so then you'd be deceptive in what you're doing. So you want to avoid things that are uh, deceptive uh, in, in terms of uh, what, what is happening with the money that is uh, being provided. And fundraising is both, um, uh, obviously, for a registered charity, something that CRA uh, cares a lot about, and they've put out a very detailed guidance on uh, fundraising by registered charities that you can get online at the CRA website. Um, it's quite helpful in terms of understanding some of the issues. It's also an area of provincial uh, concern um, because it's uh, essentially, um, you know, so for example, in Ontario, we have the public guardian and trustee who is uh, quite concerned with uh, how things are done when it comes to fundraising. And it's both provincial and it is also uh, federal. But the fundamentals are CRA doesn't want to see any illegal uh, fundraising, deceptive fundraising. Um, they don't want there to be excessive private benefits. You know, it's okay for fundraisers to be paid. But let's say a major fundraiser doing a certain job is paid $200,000. You can't just sort of hire someone because you like them and pay them 400000 for the same job that really the market rate is 200000 So those sort of things. Or paying some company $4 for a chocolate bar that you're going to sell for $4.50 when you could pick up those chocolate bars for $0.50 cents, uh, would be another example of uh, there being too much private uh, benefit. Um, the idea, keep in mind, is that fundraising is not for the sake of fundraising. Fundraising is actually to try and have that money be then deployed either in gifts to charities or in uh, actual charitable programs. So reasonable amounts can be spent on fundraising and administration and things like that. But the idea is not to have um, money spent on fundraising any more than it needs to be uh, spent on uh, fundraising. Yeah. And those are all generally good rules to live by, regardless of what uh, CRA says. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, donation receipts. These are... Uh, 
they're very specific around what you need to include and how you need to include it. Can you talk to us? I think there are there 10 pieces of information that you need on a tax receipt. Yeah, no, there's more. It depends on the nature of the receipt because, for example, if you have a receipt which is going to be for uh, a gift in kind and and it's over $1,000, so you have a valuation, then it means that there will, in fact, be uh, even more uh, information that is uh, required. Um, I mean, receipting is a very important issue. Uh, Lots of charities are making what I'd call small mistakes, um, and then there are some charities making really big mistakes. Big mistakes are ones like where you issue $100 million worth of receipts that you're not supposed to issue, okay? So I don't want to get caught up in this idea of, um, oh, you're not doing it right. That's really bad because most charities are not doing it right. But there's not doing it right where it's a minor detail and there's not doing it right, which is really bad stuff. And so I just want to always make that uh, clarification here. And so one example that many charities are not necessarily doing right is the uh, there are a whole bunch, about 15 different things you're supposed to have on there, your business number, the charity's name, and uh, you know the uh, eligible amount of the gift and things like that. And sometimes some of the information is missing. And so, for example, when CRA changes their website, they expect you're also going to change the information on your receipt. And some groups haven't changed their receipts in a very long uh, period of time. And so, you know making sure all the mandatory fields are on there um, is obviously the simplest thing to uh, do and fix. And CRA has model receipts on their website that you can even go and you can cut and paste them and use those as models for it. And we've put out a receipting kit, which is about 200 pages long, and it has lots of information on uh, how to receipt and also what are some of the CRA policies dealing with with receipting. But Basically, with receipting, um, most receipts are actually relatively simple. You know, someone gives $50, they don't get anything back. That's not so complicated. Um, However, when people start getting advantages back that are significant, uh, so you give $50, but you're getting a book back, which is worth $25, then you have to make sure that is counted. And when you have a golf tournament and there's very high expenses and things like that, you have to see and make sure that these are appropriately counted. that they're appropriately done. So what is called split receding or making sure you subtract the advantage is quite an important uh, part of it. The other thing is that um, I give lots of suggestions to my clients as to how to make receding simple. Um, But certainly one of the uh, ways to do it is to think carefully about having a gift acceptance policy, having a policy which talks about many things, including when you will issue receipts. And so for some charities, uh, they'll, for example, use something like uh, Canada Helps. It facilitates a lot of the receipting because, you know, honestly, if you had to do 500 receipts and they're all for less than $20, it's a lot of work. Uh, But you can just have the money, you know, go, for example, through a portal like Canada Helps and it saves a lot of time, effort and energy. Someone wants to give you a million dollar donation, you may may or may not do it through Canada Helps. You may decide they'll write you a check and you'll do it yourself. But for this, so there's a lot of ways you can actually reduce by very large amount the number of receipts you issue. And also, if you say that for under a certain value, we won't issue receipts, then that can also save you time. And you know, if it's a small amount of money, in many cases, people don't expect to get a receipt anyway. The key thing is tell people what you will and won't do. The other way to dramatically simplify receipting is just to say, for cash or for certain types of things like marketable securities, we will issue receipts. But everything else, you know, so you want to give us a secondhand computer, great, thank you, it's so helpful, but we're not issuing your receipt for it, okay? And by basically avoiding 
generally issuing receipts for gifts in kind, unless there are certain ones, you know, if someone's going to give you a $10 million piece of land, then fine, you'll issue a receipt for it. If they're going to give you shares on a stock exchange, you know, in the Toronto Stock Exchange, it's not that hard to do the receipting, right? But if, if you're going to receipt every $20, $30, $40 item that comes in, that's a gift that is um, essentially, uh, you know, a toaster that the person got or something, uh, then you have to work out the value and you may not do a good job of that and it can create problems. And I see a lot of charities spending a lot of time trying to value items that they really don't know much about. Uh, You know, some of the common ones are things like uh, uh, computer programs or art or wine or things like that. So I'm not saying you should never receipt for them. If you are a charity who's going to get a lot of wine donations, it may make sense to do it. If you're an art gallery, it makes sense to issue receipts on art. But if you're just a little organization, you know, um, do you really have the expertise to really take care of that sort of stuff? And if you don't, then best not to issue a receipt. Uh, that will get you in uh, trouble later. Excellent. I, the other thing that I've seen so many times are companies asking for re- charitable receipts for sponsorship, <laughs> which is a big right. no-no. Right. Well, yeah. So, for example, in the case of sponsorship, the the concept is it's not really a gift. They're buying sort of advertising space, if you will, and uh, they're getting a huge value back. So, yes, it cost them $10,000, but in many cases, they could be getting, uh, you know, $50,000 in value. So, clearly, they wouldn't get a receipt in that case. Now, in the end, uh, you know, the company, if they got a receipt or they didn't, from a tax point of view, they're going to deduct it anyway. It doesn't actually make much of a difference. It's just the charity that's doing something wrong that they should quite... Uh, and it's easy to fix. Just don't issue receipts like that. Um, you know, some of the, I'll give you a few examples. One is where a person is forced by, say, a court order to, to give money to a charity. That is not a gift. It's not voluntary, right? Or if a person's paying money to a charity for a service like a daycare and they're basically their kids are there, that is not a donation to the charity. They're paying for it. Lottery tickets or 50-50 draws, things like that, you don't issue any receipts. And sometimes uh, people do. Um, so there's all sorts of different things that come up where receipts are issued and they're not supposed to be issued at all. Yeah. And I think if you're ever in debt, one, one of the things I used to do all the time was just pick up the phone and call the charities directorate at CRA. They'll answer Absolutely. and guide you through all of these things. No problem. So it's what I tell people is absolutely for, and if you're a small charity and you just want to know, or you're just interested in something, of course, call CRA. It's a free call. They'll answer the phone in a few minutes and stuff like that. But if it's an important issue where potentially um, you uh, can alienate certain stakeholders and other things, remember that if you call CRA and they tell you you should do something or you shouldn't do it, um, it's, it puts your organization in a bind. You've just been advised by CRA you should or shouldn't do something. And you know really, you're in a bit of a bind when, in fact, the CRA may actually be wrong. Because they're just giving you off-the-cuff comments that may or may not be accurate, may or may not relate to the exact details of the charity. Is the person at CRA actually pulling up the objects of your charity, you know, when they're answering the question? Are they looking at your bylaws? You know, and the answer is generally no. They're just giving you general information that may or may not be applicable. And so I definitely encourage people, especially from smaller charities, to make use of that very helpful service. Um, But it has its limitations. And I've uh, too often seen people doing things that are very inappropriate. And they said, well, we asked someone at CRA, X, Y, Z. And then I'll say, well, yeah, but that's not actually what you're doing. So you asked them something they gave you might have been the right response even. 
but that's not actually how they would see this if they were looking at it. And that's when they call you. Well, they call someone who can help them. And in some cases, it would be a a lawyer who spends a lot of time in the charity area. But it might also be that they talk to someone who's like a CFO at a major charity Mm -hmm. who's had to deal with some of these issues for 10 or 20 years. And they can also help them uh, the way I see it. Or for that matter, um, you know, we've put up 2,500 blog posts on our website. Um, There's a lot of material, uh, for example, on our globalphilanthropy.ca website that's available, or if they're interested in receipting, our receipting kit is freely available, and they can do a keyword search in there that might also be helpful. And in the end, they might do various things. They may speak to a lawyer, they may speak to an accountant, they may speak to CRA, they may look on the web, they may do all of this stuff if it's an important issue and the consequences are there. With receipting, it's something that CRA takes very seriously. So even if you do just a few receipts that are inappropriate, it can be significant repercussions for the charity. So definitely what I'm hearing across the board is take the time to do it properly the first time so you don't get in trouble, whether it's your T3010 or your donation receipts, really take the time to learn how to do it and build processes and systems in your organization so that it's consistently done long after you're gone. That's yeah. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. And the other thing is, and unfortunately, CRA doesn't do its charity roadshows anymore, but there's a lot of resources that are available. There are courses that are being offered on different issues. Um, and I encourage people to take them because I think education is actually the key uh, more than enforcement because CRA can only audit maybe 800 or 900 charities a year and there's 86,000 of them. So having groups go to courses, uh, you know, uh, on issues like receding or foreign activities or whatever, learning what the rules are, uh, in addition to reading the actual documents, the CRA's guidance and commentary by others, which is, you know, the stuff's just about all publicly available and easy to, to get at. Um, I encourage people to do that. And then, um, you know, these are not issues that a lawyer is going to be able to, unless you plan on calling them every 20 minutes, It's not a very viable option for most charities. It's more viable to learn how to do it right. And when you run into something that really stumps you, then you get uh, advice, uh, you know, as as you need it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think on that note, I will say thank you so much. There's a lot of information here for organizations to start to absorb and I think take action on in terms of making sure all their their back end is is according to uh, according to regulations. So I think there's probably a few people who are furiously making notes. And that was really helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy, for inviting me. And if ever you need me, uh, just let me know. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.